On Friday evening, many of you were here with us in the theater for the Liturgy of the Crucifixion, and we did there as we always have done on Maundy Thursday, and finished our worship service together with a partial rendition of the Apostles' Creed, which I have to say is always painful to me, and I expect to you. We finished with these words, He was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. And there's nothing but silence for three days. It's hard to return home on that, isn't it? As it must have been hard for the disciples to return home from Calvary on that day. But, of course, the greatest event in the history of the world awaited them on the third day. They didn't know it, but it was there waiting for them. We've already read an account of it from Mark's Gospel earlier in our worship service. And because of the resurrection, the Apostles' Creed doesn't end in darkness. It ends in greatness. I believe in the Holy Ghost the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and therefore the life everlasting. Amen. And a man named Saul, who was an enemy of Jesus at the time of his death, would come to know the truth of this resurrection and would stake his life on it writing these words to the Corinthian church only about 20 years after the fact. Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order... Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but these words of our God will stand forever. Father, we pray that you would be with us. Would you grant us your spirit this morning as we gather as your church to worship you? Would you enable us to believe this good news, which is far beyond our capacity to even imagine, much less to make happen, because only you are the author of life. Only you can and have overcome death. And so we give you thanks for that. And pray that you would cause us to believe this morning together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Can you believe that Saul believed? Can you believe that? I mean, this man who wrote these words of this letter that we've just read... This man who, next to Jesus himself, would become the central human figure in the New Testament, most would say. Do you know that he was actually one of the last people who should have believed this? He was a highly educated and religious Jew of his day. He was an up-and-coming Pharisee in his culture. That meant that he was 
a person of great privilege. He was even considered to be an authority by the killers of the first Christian martyr. Do you know that? In Acts chapter 7, Luke gives us the account of the stoning of Stephen, the first Christian martyr, and the witnesses of that execution, Luke tells us, laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul who approved of the execution. He was considered to be an authority by those people. Can you believe that this Saul believed the gospel. This man, who the historical account tells us, was ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging men and women to prison because they believed in Jesus. Can you believe that this man believed? This man, who actually went to the extent to go to the high priest and request letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that as Paul traveled there, if he found anyone who believed in the way, that is, Christians, if he found any of them, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem and throw them into prison. Can you believe that this man believed the gospel? This man, of whom observers later on, hearing him preach Christ, once he did believe, observers would say of him, Wait a minute, isn't this the man who wreaked havoc on Christians in Jerusalem and then came to Damascus to do the same? Isn't this that man? They were astonished. How could this man believe this thing he now preaches, which just last week he was seeking to destroy? Can you believe that this man believed? Only a short season after the execution of Jesus, Saul came to believe. And 20 years later, if that, he would write to the confused Greek church in Corinth these words, staking his life on their veracity. What could bring about such a change in such a man? Only one thing. The resurrection of the body of Christ. Saul was, of course, famously on the road to Damascus when that risen Christ met him and confronted him and called him. And from that moment, everything changed. And so today, we gather here in this theater to join the church worldwide in celebrating the single most remarkable historical event ever known to the human race, a man crucified, dead, buried, and rose again from the grave. And so the question for you this morning is, do you believe in the resurrection of the body? Do you believe in the resurrection of the body? I don't mean resurrection as some nebulous spiritual concept. I don't mean Resurrection as some creative social optimism. And I don't mean resurrection as some subjective, fabricated, wishful thinking dream. I don't mean resurrection in quotes at all. I mean, do you believe in the physical, historical resurrection of the body of Jesus Christ? And therefore, do you believe in the physical, future resurrection 
of your own. Do you believe? Paul offers a number of reasons, and there are many reasons why we ought to believe in the resurrection of the body. I will tell you, based on Paul's words here, I believe in the resurrection of the body because it's a pivotal point of truth in this gospel that we proclaim. Paul's argument to that effect precedes the verses that we've just read together in this letter These verses being a part of the answer to his concern for this Corinthian church. He wrote to them, I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you're being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you. The problem was the Corinthian church was not holding fast to the word that he had preached to them. Their lives look just like the lives of the people in the Greco-Roman culture of their day. Their immorality and their arguing and their greed, it looked just like the rest of the world. They were not holding to the gospel that Paul had preached to them. And evidently, they had begun to push away parts of it, in particular, doubting the pivotal point of the truth about this gospel, the resurrection of the body of Christ. And so that's where Paul begins his argument with them. He says, I delivered to you as of first importance. We read these words earlier. What I also received, that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day. And Paul goes on to make this statement. And if Christ has not been raised, friends, then your faith is futile. It's worthless. It's garbage. It's a waste of your time if Christ has not been raised. If there is no resurrection of the body, then there is no gospel. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that there is a resurrection of the body, right? I mean, just like the Corinthians, many people, if not most people in our day, have great doubts about the historical resurrection. Maybe you do yourself. Maybe you feel that you have to, to insist, you know, it just can't happen. There's, there's no proof for such thing. In our scientific, enlightened world, we know, we now know, that things like this just don't happen. We know better, surely. I mean, there are other explanations that people offer for this resurrection account that the Gospels tell us about. Some suggest that the heartbroken disciples, seeing their leader put to death, They believed he was the Messiah. They they wanted to believe that he was the Messiah. In fact, they needed to believe that he was the Messiah. And surely they lived in a culture, we assume, that believed in magic and supernatural things. And so it was entirely possible that the disciples, with such vested interest, could have deceived themselves or have been deceived by someone who stole the body from the tomb and hid it away in an impossibly unsearchable place and made up a story. And so the gospel accounts are written to support that story. But not so fast. Because the burden of proof of the resurrection of the body is not just on those who believe in the resurrection, but it's also on those who believe that it's not possible. Because there are at least three things that both sides have to explain. 
the empty tomb, the eyewitnesses, and the birth of the church. Those are three historical facts that both sides have to explain. Paul's letter, along with Mark's gospel account, is one of the earliest accounts of the resurrection events. And his letter to the Corinthians was written within 20 years of the time of the event. And Paul wrote to these people, explaining that not only was Jesus dead and buried and raised again from the tomb, but, he says, he then appeared to Cephas, that is, to Peter. And then he appeared to the twelve, the disciples, and then to more than 500 at one time, most of whom are still alive, Paul writes. What's Paul doing when he writes those words to the Corinthian church? Within two decades of it happening, what's he doing? He's inviting a public investigation of a public event with his public letter. It would be kind of like me standing here from this pulpit on this morning during March Madness and telling you that in 1996, the University of Massachusetts Minutemen and the Mississippi State Bulldogs played in their first ever Final Four basketball, for those of you who aren't following me that UMass and Mississippi State played in their first ever Final Four in 1996. Oh, Kentucky, they won the championship over Syracuse. That's what people remember. But in 1996, UMass and Mississippi State were there. You may not know that. You may not care about that. You may have no interest in that. But you could verify that it's true, and you don't even need the Internet to do it. A simple phone call, and if not that, hop on a bus and ride to Starkville, Mississippi. Somebody there will remember. It's just as simple as that. Paul's doing the same thing here. Paul and Mark could never have gotten away with these statements if they were not true. Paul says, 500 people saw him, most of whom are still alive. Go ask them if you don't believe me. Paul could never have gotten away with a statement like that if it weren't true. The tomb was empty despite the seal that was on it and despite the guards that stood by it. The tomb was empty and there were eyewitnesses who claimed to see Jesus. But a skeptic is going to say about that still, okay, that's fine. Even if I grant you those things, I still insist that those people were motivated to fabricate the story. After all, they needed for Jesus to be the Messiah. They had reasons to make it up. Well, that is for us a part of our blindness in the world in which we live because we either don't know or we forget that our assumptions about those who lived before us are not necessarily true. We assume that people in the first century would easily believe in something supernatural like a resurrection from the grave or magic. Not so. Because In that world, even the Greco-Roman culture in which the Corinthians and the Mediterranean world existed would not have believed in the resurrection of the body. To them, the spirit and the soul are what mattered. To the philosophers of the day, the physical, the material world was a bad thing. It was corrupt. It was decaying and falling apart. You couldn't trust it. It was going away. Everybody knows that people die. Ignore the the material world. That's not what matters. What matters is the spirit and the soul. And for a Greco-Roman thinker, 
the resurrection of the body would be the last thing they would want after death. Don't consign me to come back to this physical body. Just let my spirit be free. They wouldn't want a resurrection of the body. What about the Jews of the day? What about them? They wouldn't either have believed in this. Oh, they anticipated the resurrection of the body, but not as an individual event. They looked forward to it at the end of time, at the culmination of the kingdom of God, when God came again to make all things right. Then we would be raised together as God's people, but not now. And they certainly would never have worshipped a man who was claimed to have been raised from the dead. Even the Jews wouldn't believe it. A fabricated resurrection story would not have helped their cause unless it really happened. A skeptic has to explain why was the tomb empty? A skeptic has to explain why are there eyewitness testimony that, that, that people attest to in history that they could have gone back to ask about. Apart from the bodily res- resurrection, these things could not, not possibly be true. And yet there's a third thing, though, also the birth of the church. You know, all of the apostles and the early Christian leaders gave their lives because they persevered in believing that Jesus was raised from the dead. People don't die for a lie that they created. Certainly not scores of people. And at the time, scores of Jews began to worship a man, Jesus, whom they believed to have been raised from the dead. Jews would never worship a man. They would never have done that unless they believed he was raised from the dead. And the church that resulted persisted. Josephus was a famous Jewish historian of the first century who, as far as I know, never became a Christian. He was a Jewish historian And he wrote many things of his day, and including this. He wrote, Those who had come to love Jesus did not cease to do so after his crucifixion, for he appeared to them on the third day restored to life, as the prophets of the deity had foretold these and countless other marvelous things about him. And the tribe of the Christians, so named after him, has not disappeared to this day. Now that was in the late first century. And you can can hear the the subtle implication of Josephus' words that they have not disappeared to this day, but they kind of should have. Why have they not disappeared to this day? There were a number of would-be messiahs back in Jesus' day before him who led insurrections and rebellions against the Roman world, and the Romans only had to put to death their leader. And then the movement died. That's what happened with Jesus It appeared to be an insurrection, a rebellion, some other kingdom, some other strange god. They put him to death, and then the movement didn't die. Josephus must have been as confused by that as anyone. The tribe of the Christians so named after him has not disappeared even to this day. That was in the late first century. What would Josephus say now? to see worldwide the church growing, even still in the midst of the confusion and difficulty and darkness of this fallen world, still the church persists. The empty tomb, the eyewitnesses, the birth of the church, all three are historically accepted facts, and none of the three can be explained apart from 
the bodily resurrection of Christ. If there's no resurrection of the body, there is no gospel. If there is no resurrection of Jesus Christ, then we Christians are of all people most to be pitied. But if it did happen, and friends, it did happen, then it changes our lives completely. I believe in the resurrection of the body not only because it's a pivotal point of truth, but because it's a powerful triumph of grace. See how Paul begins to do his theology in verse 21 of this passage. He says, For as by a man came death, so by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Now, does that sound familiar to you? Those words should sound really familiar to you who are Pauline theologians of the Romans letter variety, right? In Romans 5, Paul wrote some very similar words. He said, If because of one man's sin, death reigned through that one man, how much more then will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? What's Paul talking about? He's talking about what we call representative theology. You have a representative, theologically speaking. Now, we in this country think we like the idea of representative government, right? We, we think we like that idea, although we get very frustrated when our representatives don't represent us in the way that we want for them to do. And so we try to vote them out. That's what we do. But when it comes to representative theology, we're not really so sure we like that. Why? Because we just want to compile a list of things that we should do and things that we should not do. We want to compile a list of things that we have done and things that we have not done. And then compare and contrast them with each other and also with other people and show, as I said last week, we do to the dentist that we don't really need God. We can floss our teeth and brush and swish our mouth out and prove that we really don't need the dentist in the same way we want to compare and contrast lists to prove that we don't really need God. But the gospel is what we call justification by faith. By faith in what? By faith in our list? No. By faith in our representative. So who is your representative? Is it Adam? Or is it Jesus? Death came through the one. But life came through the other. Sin came through the one. But righteousness came through the other, Paul says. By the power of God... The resurrection is the triumph of grace. The historical bodily resurrection of Jesus is the death blow to death. Paul goes on in verse 24. He says the end will come. He's beginning to kind of channel revelation here in case you didn't recognize it. The end will come when Jesus delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. It seems that Paul 
had seen some of what the Apostle John had seen, which he wrote to us in Revelation. Paul is looking forward to the end, which John describes for us in very poetic and clear terms. And we'll come back to it in future weeks. It seems that Paul must have seen something of what John saw. The Word of God coming on a white horse with his army behind him to do what? To capture the beast and the false prophet and to throw them into the lake of fire. And in chapter 20, to seize the devil himself and to throw him into the lake of fire. You hear what's happening. He's destroying every ruler, every authority, every power of this world. But then there's one more to be destroyed. And the Revelation gives it to us in chapter 20. One more to be thrown into that lake of fire. And and who is it? It's death. You know, every world religion says a version of one of two things. Either they say to you, there's nothing wrong with you, and you need to learn to love yourself as you are. Or they say some version of this. They say something is wrong with the world and even with you, and here's a list of what you can do to fix it. Every world religion says some version of those two things. But then there's the gospel, which says to you, yes, there's something wrong. In fact, you can't possibly even see to the bottom of that dark hole. There's something terribly wrong, and there's nothing that you can do to fix it. There's no list that you can come up with that would be complete enough. There is no activity that you can engage in that would possibly overcome the darkness of the depths of what's wrong with you in this world. There's nothing that you can do apart from the grace of God. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the powerful triumph of that grace in which He's accomplished for you everything that He has ever required of you. I believe in the resurrection of the body because it's the pivotal point of truth. And I believe in the resurrection of the body because it's a powerful triumph of grace. I also believe in the resurrection of the body because it's a profound inspiration of hope. Paul says the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And its destruction, I would suggest to you, is Paul's motivation. He goes on in the latter part of this letter to say to them, Look, if the dead are not raised, then why would I preach this gospel which caused me to be thrown to the beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, he says, then let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Don't be deceived, he writes to his friends in Corinth. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor. What does he mean by that? Is Paul just being moralistic there? Is he saying to them, quit drinking beer, your friends are being bad for you? That has nothing to do with what he's saying. Bad company ruins good morals. He's saying to them, don't be deceived. Your Greco-Roman philosophy and culture has affected your thinking, friends. And it will ruin you. It has suggested to you that the resurrection itself would be a curse. Who wants to come back into a body? After all, they say to you, the physical world is worthless. Your friends you Corinthians, say to you that you're so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good in this Roman world. But Paul says, no, 
I say, if you're not heavenly minded, then you are no earthly good. You can't possibly be. Now, a a skeptic might have trouble with the resurrection of the body. And and you might find yourself in those shoes. You might have a hard time and, and think, you know, the bodily resurrection is impossible for me to believe. It's an obstacle I just can't get over. But you have to admit that you should want for it to be true. You should want for it to be true. Why? Because if this material world has no significance beyond the sound and fury of all that you see in this day, then why should anything that you do in this day matter at all? Why should you pursue justice if in the end this world will just come to nothing? Why should you enjoy what's beautiful in this world if in the end the material world that you experience with your senses means nothing at all. Why should, you, why should you enjoy what's beautiful? Why should you try to relieve hunger in this world if, if it's all just going to come to dust and nothing in the end? Why should you care for the environment if this world means nothing in the end? Why should you care for any of these things? The resurrection of the body is the one thing that ultimately can inspire hope in this life. And the resurrection of the body of Jesus is simply the first fruit of more to come. Your own. Your own resurrection of your own body. Now, what kind of body will that be? What exactly does that mean? Paul, of course, anticipates the question, as you might know, in this chapter of Corinthians. The Corinthians would have asked that question. Paul, what what kind of body is it going to be if this is going to happen? Explain this to us. And Paul explains to them with some farming metaphors about sowing seeds and, and bearing fruit. And he ends up explaining to them it's going to be a spiritual body. Well, what does that mean? I don't really know. But it will be a body. It will be a body. I mean, after all, the disciples recognized Jesus. After he rose from the tomb and he met them and interacted with them for many days, they recognized him. At first, they didn't. I mean, you realize, you read the gospel accounts and and on many occasions they saw him and they didn't know. You know, one of the women spoke to him as though he were the gardener, assuming that he was someone she didn't know. And as soon as he spoke her name, he knew, she, she knew who he was. They had a hard time recognizing him at first. Why? Because he was different. But they did recognize him. They knew who he was. What's the point? The ultimate hope of a Christian is not for life after death in heaven. Do you know that? That is not the end point. The ultimate hope of a Christian is not for life after death in heaven, but rather it's for the second resurrection. The Revelation begins to speak of these things in terms of the first resurrection, the second resurrection, the first death, the second death. What do those things mean? Well, we'll come to them soon enough. But the first resurrection is the new life that you have in Christ. If you are in Christ today, then you have been blessed by the first resurrection. We speak in those terms. You know, we talk about being born again in becoming a Christian, about having new life in Christ. You have benefited from the first resurrection if you are a Christian. 
But the second resurrection is the new body that you'll have in the new heavens and the new earth. Ultimately, the hope of a Christian is to have life after life after death. Does that make sense? To have life after life after death. And much of what you do in this life now will be reflected in the next. Paul insists to the Corinthians at the end of this chapter that because of the resurrection of the body, their labor in this life is not in vain, he tells them. I think what he means is that what you do in this life will carry on to the next, or at least parts of it will. Parts of it will not be burned away. Parts of it will stand and be reflected in your future self. So what do you do in this life that will be reflected in the next? Ask yourself that question and examine your own life and see what is it that I do in this life that will be reflected and carry on into the next? What, what parts of your current self will make your future resurrected self recognizable? I was telling some of the men the other morning at breakfast that I've always aspired to learn to play piano. I've told my kids this a number of times, enough times and not yet done it that they don't believe me anymore and they ignore me. It's one of the many things they ignore about me, I'm sure. I aspire to play piano. I'm 47 years old and and I've been inspired to play piano for years and years and one day I will. And many in this world would hear such a ridiculous suggestion on my part and say, oh, listen, you're on borrowed time, man. You should have done that when you were a kid. And my answer to that is, I am a kid. I'm only 47 years old. You may be only 88 years old. But as you look forward to life after life after death, what you do now, in many ways, will be carried on and reflected in the you after the resurrection. I would suggest to you, if I begin to learn piano now, I'll have a head start for eternity. And I'll be pretty good a thousand years from now. I don't know. What are you building into your life in this life that will be recognizable in the next? Rodney Jones was going to be a speaker at a church in East Tennessee. And on the evening before, he was going to go to this church. He was staying in a motel and he pulled out the Gideon Bible from the drawer by the bed to take a look at the scripture and think about what he was going to talk about in the church the next day. He opened this Bible and he found on the inside cover a letter written in pen by hand by a father to his son. And this is what it said. Dedicated to the memory of my precious son Christopher, age four, who departed this life to be born in heaven, April 20, 1992. Here's what he wrote. Dear Christopher, it's hard to believe it's been almost seven years since you died. It seems almost like a lifetime ago. I miss you still, and I know that I always will. I will miss all the fun we would have had together, and perhaps Cameron, your nephew, will fulfill some of those lost memories. You would like Cameron. He's terrific. And you would be very proud of your sister, Kim, and Kevin, her husband. They have turned out so well. I know you know all about what's going on, but it's not the same as having you here. I will see you again one day, and maybe then we can catch up on lost time. 
I still love you with all my heart, and I will never forget you. Love, Dad, April 10, 1999. Now, I have kind of mixed feelings as I read that letter. It's a powerful letter to imagine. No father wants to write that letter. I have mixed feelings about it because he says one thing that I think is a bit of a stretch. He suggests to his deceased son that you know all about what's going on in this world from your vantage point in heaven. I don't think that there's anything in Scripture to suggest that that's the case, that the deceased look back on the world and know all that's going on. But I can pardon him for that. Because what he does say is so powerful and so true. I will see you again one day. And maybe then we can catch up on lost time. Can you imagine that? I hope that you can. Because that's what Scripture tells you. That is the hope that you have in the resurrection of the body. And it is true. This life is merely the entry into eternity. The empty tomb demands an answer. The eyewitnesses require some explanation. The birth of the church cannot be understood apart from the fact that a man walked out of his tomb where he had been laid dead. Now, some of you are lawyers. Will there be lawyers in heaven? Sure there will. It's not not a lawyer joke. I don't mean it that way. Of course there will be lawyers in heaven. That is who had been lawyers in the previous life. But you won't have to be a lawyer in heaven. Will there be policemen in heaven? Well, there will be who had been policemen before, but there will be no need for policemen in heaven. Will there be ambulance drivers in heaven? Of course, but they won't be driving ambulances because the new heavens and the new earth will be completely different than what we can possibly imagine now. Because of the resurrection of the body of Jesus, and you're looking forward in hope to the same for yourself. Paul does something amazing to finish here in this letter. Late in the chapter, he begins to do something that seems a bit improper for an apostle, maybe. He begins to boast. He says, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? He's boasting. It's kind of like a a final four-bound team pointing at the bench of the other team at the end with one-point lead and three seconds on the clock. You never know what's going to happen. But Paul does know what's going to happen. He's lit his cigar and he said, Look, friends, death has lost this battle. How can he be so sure? Because he knows that he met the resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus. And from that point, everything Everything was completely and totally and eternally different. The resurrection of Christ is is the pivotal truth of the gospel. Without it, there is no gospel. The resurrection of Christ is the, the great triumph of God's grace over all that's broken in this world. And the resurrection of Christ is the inspiration of any hope that you can possibly have in this world. May you recognize and believe by faith that Jesus did rise from the tomb and therefore you might do the same. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.